Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. Joining us again is Tom Wong, Assistant Managing Editor for Features and Community Engagement at the Dallas Morning News. Tom was on the last podcast as we talked about paying it forward. Today's topic, managing projects. And there's a collective groan on the other side of this uh, podcast. So with this merry threesome of ours, we've all been wrestling projects for years. And there are certain steps, pointers, principles we've picked up along the way. For you editors out there, we'll start by talking about how Tom and I see ourselves through this process. He thinks of the editor as the impresario. I think of a maestro. Either way, you get the idea. So how does that work for you, Tom? What's your mindset going in? Yeah, one of my um, editors once told me that it's it's not enough to just be a good uh, word and line editor, especially on the big story, that you've got to be what he called an impresario, which is, um, and I think if you look at the definition, it's, it literally means uh, someone who produces a play for the theater. And so literally, you have to be thinking about um, who are the actors, how's it being staged, uh, how's the writer involved, um, how are we going to get the audience for it? What are the logistics of putting the play on? And so you begin to think of your your own role as an editor on a big story as that wide and sprawling. And so how do you pick up all of the skills that's necessary to manage a big story like that? So it's not it's not simply you know the craft of editing the words in the story is just one part of that. And so. Um, and Maria, you're a lot, as I said, you're a lot better than I am at this, but I tried to break it down into different steps that the impresario needs to do. So I think you begin by sparking the idea all the way down to, um, I think now, how do, you, how do you find the audience for the big story? And there are many steps in between. So when, I know it took me a while to get out of my own head that like as an editor, there was, there was a bigger role to play. 
Um, how long did it take you, Tom, to kind of get there? Because I'm sure starting out, you were thinking just in terms of, I got to make this one, the individual story better. It's interesting because I was, I was starting to do some of it as a reporter too, because I had editors who were, they were not good at this. Either, <laughs> either they were not good and wanted to dump it on me or they were good and wanted me to learn how to do it. So I guess either way it worked out. So you know, I would actually start to help organize projects as a reporter. I remember um, kind of in my early days in Dallas, I had an idea of doing a project on the um, impact of immigration on the city of Dallas. And so I literally kind of... There's a small topic. Yeah, yeah <laughs> probably too large um, looking back on it because it was kind of a cover the whole thing kind of project and it could have been a lot more focused but um so i got a group together to brainstorm ideas around it and then worked with editors to assign those stories to reporters so lane as a reporter i mean what do you need most do you think jumping into a project what do you need most from the empresario or the maestro i mean what do you what are you hoping that they will keep you from or what you know what's the most important thing do you think I think maybe I was really lucky in that my first few projects didn't start out as projects. So I wasn't daunted by this idea like, oh, hell, it's a project. You know, it was like the, what you said from the beginning, sparking the idea. Like I, you guys know I come up with a zillion ideas, but having somebody buy into one really good idea and make me believe it's a really good idea, that's the first step for me. You know, I, a lot of times I'm not even sure. I'm just throwing it out there for something. And I know Mike Wilson, who Tom, you work with, I came back with a story I did one time. I had met this like 99-year-old man who was still sweeping a shrimp factory. And I was like, I don't know, at least this old guy sweeping this fish factory. Mike was like, this could be your best story of the year. This is amazing, Layton. Like I hadn't seen that it was amazing until he saw that it was amazing, you know, and something I thought I would spend a day on, he was like, spend a week, and then we ended up spending a month on it. So I think having the buy-in that the editor agrees this is a good idea and is willing to ride it out with you and see how far you can take it, that was for me the beginning rather than like, let's try an eight-part series, you know? Yeah, so, and, and Mike Wilson's really great at this, um, that's why he's a great editor. It's um, recognizing what the possibilities of a story from the beginning and um, giving the reporter a little bit of the time and space to figure that out before jumping into um, what what is the format that the story should take. Should should we know exactly what the story is about right away before we commit to it? Um, how much time are we going to need for it? Where's it going to run? I mean, all of those are important questions, but there still needs to be time before all of that to really think about what the story's about. Um, and then I think the other thing that, that Mike's really good at is, um, which I'm less good at, is really pushing for a better idea. You, you might have a starting point for an idea, but then he really pushes you to think about, well, is this the best angle to take? Right. I think we sometimes jump in too quickly and like sitting around a table and somebody throws something out and it sounds good. And so, and then the P word gets thrown around and actually I think they're better when they evolve organically a little more and like, and then you do a little bit of that, like go back out and do some reporting and see if the idea that you had really kind of bears out or, or maybe to Mike's point, maybe it pushes in a different direction and you find a, a, an even better project. So to me, the ones that are harder are the ones that like it's 
you got to do it because it's an anniversary story or because, I don't know, somebody on high decided that this was, you know, a, a big story to do versus something too that I think when the reporter's already caught up, it's so much easier to work with that and then, and then sort of see. But I like, you call it sparking the idea. To me, it's sort of the vetting the idea process that just sort of figuring out where, where it's really going to go. What's the potential of that story? What's the best case scenario, the best case scenario kind of story we could tell? And then if it all falls apart, what do we have? So that like, you know, we at least have an, an idea of what's at stake. Well, and then there's this 10 words, you know, that you like to hear from your editor as a reporter who's like, I'm not going to put it on the budget yet. You know, I think, I think no promises. When, when yeah. I think, and I know, I mean, I haven't felt this pressure like you guys do, but the, if you have a reporter in the pipeline and the people above you are going like, what's that person working on? And you got to go, oh, they have this project. And then all of a sudden they want it by Thursday. You know, it's almost like, please don't tell anybody that I'm working on this until I know what it is. You know, and that's a huge gift when my editors can do that. Like, like you said, like, we're going to see where this goes and then figure it out. Right. Yeah, that's, I've been on those trains too, where they, they leave the station before you've really had a chance, um, which kind of dovetails. So one of the things that Tom uh, talks about in managing projects is thinking critically. And I think that's what we're talking about here too, is not um, challenging the idea before you get going, like before everyone invests too much time and energy. And, and even if they invest time and energy on the front end, that you could let go of it if it's not there or, or downsize it, right? I mean, but is that what you were thinking about in terms of thinking critically or you, are there steps you take? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking of, um, and I would love to know more about question, good questions to ask to elevate an idea. So I like the minimum maximum exercise where, where the editor and reporter talk about in the best case scenario, what is the greatest story? What's the blue sky here? But then... Even if we invest some resources, um, what's the worst case scenario? You know, what's the minimum story that we can get from this? And so that, I think that um, allays some of the insecurities on both the editor and the reporter, just knowing that they'll be able to produce something. But I think there are better questions. Um, you know, I think, and Jackie Banashinsky, I think, is an expert at really thinking through the different slices of a story. She has this whole exercise of mapping out all of the possible stakeholders mm -hmm. in a story and approaching it that way. And she braids timelines of history, what's going on in the world versus what's going on in this, your subject's life versus what's at stake, you know, globally and also really uh, microcosmically, which is, I think when you're on the ground <laughs> as a reporter, sometimes you're not thinking that, that up and down that much you're just like can I get this person to talk to me you know and right. having somebody walk you through about like what was going on in, in the rest of the world you know while this happened I feel like newsrooms maybe have gotten a little better at um, thinking through this stuff because we don't have the latitude that we used to have we don't have as many people you know every project that we invest in has to really pay off I don't know that's just my sense do you feel that way like that we're um, I don't know we just we, we can't afford to take as many you know, left turns and, and go down the road and then find out that the project doesn't deliver everything that it should. Well, Not yeah. to say that we don't still do that from time to time. No, definitely with, um, you know, with the resources that we have, we just have to be smarter about how we apply them. Um, one thing that, you know, I, I think worries a lot of um, storytellers is just the, also the importance of data and metrics um, and how there's just a lot of pressure to, 
to know that if you're going to invest the time and energy in a big story that it really needs to do well um, online as right. well. And so you have to invest in working with really good people to figure out how to find the audience for it. Um, what worries me sometimes is that um, we may decide not to pursue a certain story because maybe we don't think it's going to do well online. And so we're almost preempting ourselves in that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I also think that brings up something that's been interesting for me, like in 30 years of doing daily newspapers, the process, even of a project used to be me and my editor, and then we'd get it ready. And then maybe a designer would come in. And now we have 15 people in a room about who, how are we going to social media this? How is the video going to look like? Are we going to have a documentary with this or just a slideshow? And so all these other brains and heads in the room, it's both invigorating and annoying you know it's like <laughs> there's all these different perspectives that you have to consider that of course in the end are going to make your story stronger but i feel like sometimes it's hard to focus on just the, the writing part of it because there's so many other components they're asking you to do yeah, you know it's, it's more challenging for sure and that like in terms of managing it then for us um it's uh, for tom and i it's more um you've got to coach the whole team and so the writing part of it is just one piece of it and then trying to figure out what everybody else needs to do and trying to keep everybody I hate sports metaphors but you know it's hard not to like that's what it feels like right you've got all these players so um, any tricks Tom on like what you do how do you what do you what do you try to do to, to make sure that everybody stays everybody's on the same page well so in the ideal world uh, I or the editor would think ahead and and think about who needs to be in the room right at the beginning when an idea is being formed even. And sometimes people think that's too early. And so, and I know there's, there are different thoughts on how soon to bring in all the different storytellers for a story. But typically I like to try to bring everyone to the table at the beginning. So like if you know it's a story that is gonna need a lot of work um, in social to get an audience, um, I wanna bring in the audience specialists at the beginning so that they have some investment and buy-in to the story. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. And Lane is shaking her head. No, I wish we but, had one of those. <laughs> um, and obviously, you know, it's it's traditional now that, that the visual journalists really do need to be at the table at the beginning. Um, but then there's this delicate balance of, um, you know, the reporter probably has a very strong vision for the story. And once you bring in other really talented people to the table, they may have differing visions. Mm -hmm. And so there's that whole tension that you have to manage as the editor of the project. Yeah. Um, one of the things uh, talk about is keeping the trains running on time, which sounds not very inspiring, but like it's like, the mechanics of it and making sure that things get done and everybody's doing their part. And I know one of the, the conversations that Lane and I quite often have around projects is she'll make a list. What do I need to do? Who do I need to send what to? What needs to go first? I mean, 
those kind of, and it is, it, just, it is a distraction. It's hard to not be a distraction because of the days when all you had to do was just write. It's, it is much easier than when you have it written down, at least for me, because I can cross things off or check things off and not have to have them swirling in the ether land out there, you know, and giving other people on the project our checklist so they know where we are too. I think that's really helped. Like they might, the designer might not want to know how many cut lines we need, but he knows it if he has to, you know. Yeah, so it's almost like building out a timeline for the project and knowing when certain things are due because you can't have everything due right at the end. Because the whether it's the interactive designer or the visual journalist or the even the um, person who's going to be doing the copy editing um, and the audience person, they're not going to be wanting to deal with all of that right before deadline. So it's got to be a staged process. Now, I, I remember, and I don't know when you guys, you guys were both at the pilot before I was, and then I, by, by the time I came, Tom, Tom had already left, but um, the pilot was very big on, I mean, they even called it the maestro process, and having all these sort of rules around projects, and that once it was a P-word story, that you, you had to have a, a back out schedule, that you tried to create this process, so really um, organized process, so that everybody had a chance to do their best work. Of course, it was a very visual paper. It relied a lot on, on great design, and so um, it was like you had to make sure that you were giving everybody in that process an opportunity to do a great job, and so I feel like I got raised up in that environment um, and it was very helpful because it was like, yeah, nothing's going to get done really well unless you're really disciplined about it, which is, um, you know, we're used to kind of the day-to-day -day journalism is all about like just, you know, you, you, there's a deadline and you got to get it done by that deadline. Yeah. And then when you don't have that pressure, we sometimes, we're not good at putting that pressure on ourselves or we keep finding excuses for why not to do things. So I don't know if you guys had that experience of the pilot. To me, the pilot and in, in, in a certain point, that was a really, I felt like that was very empowering to sort of, to realize that you had to be that disciplined around all the facets of things and getting things done, you know. If I remember right, I think the maestro process, um, I think it came out of maybe Northwestern and eventually made its way to the pilot in the early 90s. And I remember that just before I left, it was starting to build up in that way. Um, and I think it's a really good process, but I don't know that it's consistently used elsewhere. Right. I'm not sure. Um, but one question that I have for Lane is like, um, how does that affect the creative process for you as the writer who had the original vision? I, I think it both helps and hurts in a way. You know, I, I know at the end, I, I really like to be able to have it a time in my head, but after I've turned in a final draft and we've gone through a final draft and, and before you know, to have to think about it for a little bit. And now it's like the last few days before something comes out, it's like, can you write seven more tweets and make four more Facebook posts? And oh yeah, these cut lines need to be redone. It's, it really takes me out of the story. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the meta presentation or the multimedia or whatever, but I feel like I, I, I don't have that quiet cuddle time with my story that I need sometimes, you know, because it does come at the end no matter how well we plan, you know. But the other thing, and I've been really lucky that, that my editors have always, not always, but the last few years have been in the higher echelon of the newspaper. And, and so they're able to say to the photo editor or to the design person, like, give this 
give your person to my project for a minute. Let me have this person. Whereas before, a lot of times, you know, when you're working for a mid-level editor, they can't go take a designer away for a day. They can't go tell a copy editor to stay an extra three hours and do this project. So having a buy-in from somebody that can sort of direct all the trains instead of just the express line or whatever, you know, it's a terrible analogy, but like someone who, who can tell the other editors we, we need time or we need buy-in on this is what's a priority right now. That's a really good, really, really good point because, you know, if among the people who are listening, if there are newer editors or mid-level editors who are really struggling with that process, I totally get that because they have to navigate the newsroom and figure out how to, how to get buy-in from the different um, teams in the newsroom. And I think, um, Lane, you might have some more ideas on that, but I think part of it is, is like, as with everything, just really building the personal relationships ahead of time so yep. that you can call on them when you need them. Mm-hmm. And making feel, them feel like they're part of the process. I think, you know, I know, I know when I feel like Paul Alexander is into it, it's going to come out <laughs> because you have to include the designer, you know, the print designer from, and including him at the beginning instead of going, oh, I'm going to dump a 6,000 word project on you Thursday. <laughs> it, it was a lot easier to, to get his help and buy in. Yeah, I think to, to Tom's question to you originally, like the, um, the whole idea that it's your, it might be your story, your vision, and then you really have to share the baby, like, right? You, and for these projects to be most successful, everybody has to feel ownership over it, I feel like. You know, you got to, that's how I feel like when I, we're working together. I mean, it's your story. It's going to be your byline, but, but it's our story. You know, I, I, I feel invested in it too. And when you're doing a project, you want everybody to walk away feeling that way. Like they, you know, and they do. Everybody has a role to play. Everybody has a part to to. To, be, to making it the most successful thing. But um, so it, you, you do have to share, right? Which oh, yeah. is just, and, and even when it gets annoying to have 16 people weighing in, it never not makes it better. I mean, it always makes it better. You know, even if you don't agree with everything, it makes you think about things in a different way or see things in a different way or, you know, give up a piece of it. You know, maybe, maybe I can't explain how this DNA thing works very well, but the visual artist can do that or, they, you know, they can do a breakout box in that and that. And that frees me up from something. But know? have there been situations for you, Lane and Maria, where you felt like the vision, the original vision was being compromised by some other idea that was beginning to take hold? Uh, did you ever have to just stand up and say, um, I understand what you're saying, but, but this is what we originally planned to do? I feel like I've been pretty lucky. I think early on in my career, I might have had a few things where I felt like, the editors imposed their will too much, and then it, it sort of went off the rails from where 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 I was going with it. But um, but I don't know somewhere along the line where it just felt like okay, people trusted you enough to kind of run with it and you know help you, give you some direction, but not really try to take it over or turn it into something that 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 you didn't want it to be. I don't know about you if you felt that way. Oh, not in terms of big projects, you know, and stuff like that. I feel like I've maintained at least some kind of ownership over a lot of this, but more in smaller stories or weekenders that I used to feel a lot like, oh, we don't have anything to fill this hole on this holiday or on this piece of this section, or we need you to take your idea and make it work for this feature that we've already committed to, whether or not that's the way you saw your story from the beginning. You know, that doesn't, we don't have as many like slotted types of ideas for stories anymore but that would that would have been that was the thing that used to annoy me sometimes like i'd have an idea and then they'd say oh we're gonna make that work for this bottom of the sunday page because we need a spotlight here or something it does make me think that um 
you know, as we've, we all know these, the editing roles are just really difficult and complicated and challenging and, and we need to figure out ways to, to inspire other people to take them on. And I worry that, um, younger journalists who see just all of the stuff that editors have to do, you know, is that really an appealing job? I don't know, Maria, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, work a lot of hours and uh, deal with all these crazy uh, people coming together. And yeah, it's a great job. Come on. <laughs> I think you're right. I worry about that too. I don't think enough people want to, you know, we need, that's another thing about where we are today in the industry is like, we've got to have people take our places, <laughs> you know, like, and are they going to stick with it? And are they going to be, and they're going to find that exciting and challenging. And I mean, you know, and you do get better at it. So it gets easier to do. But but early on when you're learning how to, you know, either conduct the orchestra in my case or be the empresario, it's not easy. Um, so I thought, right, let's end with this. So you had that experience. And I know we've talked a little bit about how to how to keep them on track and how to do them well. But you, you, I'm sure you both had, I know I've had that experience where you get done with a project and you never want to do another project as long as you've lived. So like, what is the way, um, what are the things that you feel like, uh, that, what made that experience so bad and what can make it so much better? Aside from some of the things we've talked about. And by the way, we're recording, there's a huge storm going on outside. So you all can't hear that, but it's pretty bad the thunder god who's weighing in on your weighty question um so when a project's gone bad how do you like yeah what do you yeah when you guys think about the projects and i know you've had them because we've all had them the ones where you just like oh my god that didn't go well um like what what's your takeaway what was what what could you have done better what are the i mean and maybe there's some of the things we've talked about but what what failed when it didn't go right um, typically, it just always comes down to communication and trust. And, um, you know, uh, maybe I've done something that led to uh, damage in trust or a perception that a per that I wasn't, or maybe I wasn't listening to someone. So it, it typically comes down to communication, and and uh, which is hard because there's just so much going on, and, and mm -hmm. you're not necessarily intentionally um, right. cutting someone off. Well, I think a lot of the onus that too is sometimes on the reporter. You know, I, when I was younger, I was very hesitant to come back after every great interview and tell my editor what I'd learned or what I'd screwed up or what I realized I needed to know. I just thought I'll, I'll keep plowing through until I got this and I'll give it to them all in one big chunk and learning to be able to touch base, you know, every day or every other day, at least, even if it's just a text or a, an email to, to keep them on track of where I am. I think the ones that, that I've felt yuckiest about are when I waited too long you know, to tell the editor what I was worried about or what I was excited about. Um, so then you don't correct course as you go and then you get off track. Yeah. And then you give them this final project that the poor editor is like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? Instead of like, I've been holding your hand this whole way. You know, I think one thing that, that uh, you and Mike have both been incredibly helpful for me is I don't ever think about, well, I do sometimes think about, but I don't I try not to think about it as one big project. I try to think about it as, oh, I'm writing a 6,000 word story, but I'm really going to have three 2,000 word stories, or I'm going to write this, you know, 10 month project, but I'm going to really have 10 separate stories, not one big monolith that I can't tackle. And that helps a whole lot for me just to break it down. Like I can write a 2,000 word story. I might not think I can write a 10,000 word story. I think that's good advice actually too for everybody, all the players in the, in the process to kind of like and put in front of them, okay, you don't, 
you don't have to take the big bite, you know, take the small bite and work your way through this thing. And, you know, we're doing a lot of metaphors, but, you know, it's a marathon and you really got to take it a step at a time. So. And have something you're proud of along the way. You know what I mean? You can't work six months on a story and not have anything else in there and feel like it's ever going to be worth that. So if you can have chapter one and your editor goes, hey, I think we're, we're in good shape. Chapter one looks good. Then the next seven chapters don't seem quite as daunting. <laughs> on that note, um, okay, if you have a question for Lane or Tom uh, or you'd like to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.